Genesis chapter 9, and I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 17. Holy Scripture says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man, and for man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes so that what is written here, inspired by the Spirit of God, would impact and transform our hearts and strengthen us to walk faithfully with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled the sermon, A Fresh Start, because Genesis chapters 8 and 9 uh, consistently and frequently echoes the truth of what we learned in Genesis chapter 1. And I want to just begin just by showing you how that unfolds very briefly, and then we'll, con we'll continue um, as we walk through uh, today's passage. But at the beginning, okay, in, in Genesis chapter 1, okay, 
there were, there were waters uh, over the face of, of the earth, and, and, uh, and it, was, it was all darkness, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and then God made the light. He said, let there be light. And then God separated the waters. He, he stretched out the sky, put some waters up there and kept other waters down here. And then he separated the waters down here into the seas so that the dry land appeared. And then on the dry land, he put vegetation. And then he put the animals. And then he gave special attention to human beings. And he blessed that first man and that first woman. That's Genesis chapter 1. And that is very much what we see in Genesis chapter 8. As Genesis chapter 8 begins, we're, we're think about the, the darkness of the 40 days and 40 nights to the point where water was covering the earth. And what did God make to blow upon the earth? Well, wind. He made wind. Same word, same word that's translated spirit, of, spirit in, in chapter 1. Ruach. God made the Ruach to blow upon, upon the, the waters. And then it stands to reason that with the ceasing of the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, that now the light, the daytime light is beginning to shine out uh, more brightly again. And then through a long process, God separates the waters through a long process of evaporation and, and, and drainage and collection. God separates the waters puts them in their new proper place so that the dry land appears. And then on the dry land, he puts vegetation, as indicated by the olive leaf that the dove brings back to Noah. And then the animals get back out on the land. And of course, all along the way, God is giving special attention to mankind and specifically to Noah. And God, as we begin chapter 9, echoing Genesis 128, God blessed man. So you, you can't, you can't, the echoes are unmistakable. That's why I call it a fresh start or creation 2.0. Now let's, let's get into to, to chapter, uh, to chapter 9 here. Uh, after God had created Adam and Eve, Scripture tells us, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was Genesis 1.28. And that initial blessing upon mankind from Genesis 1 is now freshly conferred upon Noah and his sons at the beginning of chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is a restatement of God's original plan to fill the earth with human beings who bear the image of God. God's original plan has not changed but is now going forward. And whereas God spoke the original command to the first man and his wife, here in Genesis chapter 9, God speaks the command to Noah and his sons. So there is a particular emphasis placed upon men. Men get about the business of fathering children. And of course, the proper context for having children remains what it was back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which is the union of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. After God blessed Adam and Eve and charged them to be fruitful and multiply, he told them to have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's also in Genesis 1.28. Similarly, after charging Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply, God makes it clear once again that they have dominion over land creatures, sky creatures, and sea creatures. In verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. In this post-flood world, mankind still has dominion over the other creatures that God made. Remember, sons and daughters of Adam, that you are not animals nor did you descend from animals. Instead, you are human beings whose very design is to exercise authority over the animals. In Genesis chapter 2, it was Adam who named the animals. In Genesis chapter 4, it was that faithful man, Abel, who was a keeper of the sheep. In Genesis chapters 6 through 8, it was Noah's privilege to save the various kinds of animals and bring them from the pre-flood world and into the post-flood world through the ark. You'll notice that Genesis 9-2 adds a new detail that was not present in Genesis chapter 1. The beasts and birds and reptiles and fish will fear mankind and be in dread of mankind. This fear and dread were not part of the original creation but are a consequence of man's sinfulness and the corresponding brokenness that now affects the world. The wholeness of the first creation was corrupted. The pristine peace was forfeited and man's original goodness was lost. Even so, mankind has rightful dominion over the animal world and in their own instinctual way, the animals are afraid of us. God, who is sovereign over all, has delivered the animals into our hand. And one commentator, Andrew Steinman, offers this very helpful comment. He writes, the phrase, into your hand, not only signifies authority and control, but also the power of life and death. And that brings us right into verses 3 and 4. So, you notice, notice, Genesis 8 and 9 is tracking with Genesis 1 over and over again. After God told Adam and Eve to have dominion over the other creatures, he told them that every plant yielding seed and every tree with seed in its fruit was given to mankind as food, Genesis 1.29. From the moment that mankind was created until this moment, 1,657 years later, in Genesis chapter 9, after the passengers got out of the ark, until that time, it was required that human beings be vegetarians. Whether all human beings lived in accordance with this requirement, I do not know. But what we do know is that God adjusted man's diet after the flood. As we see here in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now there's a principle here that is really important to understand. God is the only one who has the authority to adjust his instruction. When God gives us instruction, our responsibility is to obey it. We are not authorized 
to add to God's instruction. We are not authorized to subtract from God's instruction. We are not authorized to in any other way modify God's instruction. Only God has the authority to modify his instruction. So you better know the Bible. Because here he does modify his instruction. In the pre-flood world, mankind's menu was fruits and vegetables. But meat, meat was not permitted until now, until Genesis 9-3. But now in the post-flood world, meat is permitted, and it is nothing less than a gift from God. Have you, do you remember that? And as I gave you the green plants, I, I give you everything. This is a gift. I give you chicken and cow, turkey and deer, lamb and duck, pheasant and quail, salmon and trout. It's a gift. Remember to say thank you. Such living creatures as these, indeed, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. There's no distinction, by the way, there's no distinction between clean and unclean at this point in terms of cons food consumption. That's under, that, that comes under the Mosaic Law. Now, there is a qualification. Animal flesh is given for food, but animal blood is not included within the scope of permitted food. It says in verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. The life of a living creature is bound up with that creature's blood. The creature's life is its blood. The life is in the blood. The blood constitutes the creature's life. And that, God says, is a reality that we must respect. We are not to violate the sanctity of the lifeblood by eating it. We are not to dishonor a creature's life by consuming its blood. Subsequent scripture reveals that the lifeblood has a special purpose. And this special purpose is so holy that the blood must not be used for the common purpose, the everyday purpose, of eating. Leviticus chapter 17 says, I will set my face against any one of you, any, any one of you or among the house of Israel, who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. That's Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 12. The blood belongs on the altar to make atonement, not on your dinner table. God has, in, in fact, God has never authorized human beings to consume blood as food. So, if I were you, I would think long and hard before consuming blood sausage or blood pudding or other items that are made with animal blood. And then after thinking long and hard and biblically about it, I wouldn't do it. Why? Because God's instruction to Noah in Genesis 9, 1 through 17 is still in effect. I'm, I'm unaware of anything in verses 1 through 17 that has been set aside. When Jesus declared all foods clean, he was speaking within a Jewish context in which some legitimate, some legitimate foods of Genesis 9-3 had been declared unclean under the Mosaic Law. The distinction between clean versus unclean foods in the Mosaic Law, that's obsolete. 
but animal blood has never been authorized as food. So, kill the animal, drain the blood, which is standard practice, cook the meat, give thanks to God, and eat to the glory of God. The theme of lifeblood that was introduced in verse 4 carries over into verses 5 and 6. These verses emphasize the special dignity of mankind by making it clear that if any animal kills a human being, or if any man murders a human being, then that animal or that man must pay the price with its own life. Verse, verse 5 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. As we enter into verse 5, we get another look at the unequal relationship between mankind and animals. Mankind has dominion over animals, verse 2. Mankind may enjoy animal flesh as food, verse 3. And we've already learned that it was right for mankind to sacrifice animals as an act of worship to God uh, during the time period before Christ's sacrifice. We saw that in Genesis 4 and again in Genesis chapter 8. Animals, although they are not moral creatures, they must respect the God-given dominion and rights of mankind. When an animal violates the dominion of man by killing a man, God requires a reckoning from the animal. The special dignity of mankind requires that an animal that kills a man should be put to death. As it says in Exodus chapter 21, verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. Now, as important as it is to put to death an animal that has killed a human being, it is even more important for human beings to enact justice against a man who murders a fellow man. You shall not murder, Exodus 20, 13. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18 about which Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, Romans 13.10. Human beings are duty-bound to honor one another as image-bearers of God. The foundational principle of respecting other human beings has nothing to do with a person's social status or economic status or educational level or likability every human being bears the image of God every human being that you have ever met or will meet every human being who has ever lived or now lives on the earth represents the fact that God is there and God is the creator and that God put his own image and likeness on that human being therefore to assault a fellow man is to assault God. What we have in Genesis 9 is another echo of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1:27 says, "So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him." And now this truth is applied into the arena of justice in chapter 9 verse 6. "Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image." In verse 6, God is setting forth the necessity and the rationale for imposing the death penalty upon murderers. The rest of society is not to be passive when someone else is guilty of murder. In fact, it is the responsibility of the larger society to bring an alleged murderer 
to justice. Once a man is convicted of murder, then it is the responsibility of the larger society to execute him. To effectively carry out this instruction, vigilante justice or mob rule will not cut it. A society must be sufficiently ordered to allow for charges to be filed and for the accused to be tried in accordance with the principles of impartial justice. Now, I want, I want to help you think carefully and biblically, and I want to help you to not make a mistake that I made almost 30 years ago when I was in high school, when I was thinking about the death penalty. I, 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 I reasoned falsely that since God had given the instruction, thou shalt not kill, that therefore it was inappropriate to exercise the death penalty because that would be killing another human being. And that, that's, a, that's an example of, of engaging with Scripture superficially. That's what I was doing. I was engaging in Scripture superficially, and I wasn't letting Scripture interpret Scripture. The truth of the matter is that it is right and necessary for human beings to kill a man whenever God authorizes it. That's the key. God is the sovereign creator and righteous judge over the entire world. Sometimes God carries out the death penalty upon human beings directly without human involvement as he just did in Genesis chapter 7 and blotted out everyone. But there are other times when, when God's will is to impose the death penalty upon a particular sinner with human involvement through human agency. So Joshua and the Israelites were not guilty of murder when they put to death the Canaanites because God had authorized it and therefore what they did was right. Here in Genesis 9, God is authorizing mankind to uphold the dignity of mankind by putting to death any human being who assaults that dignity through a murderous act. And don't, don't miss something here. The real issue here is not the dignity of man per se. Man in and of himself. Man considered independently of God. That's, that's, not, the real, that's not the real issue here. The real issue here is the dignity of God because God has put his image in the man, in the woman. And that's what we have to see, the value and worth of God whose image is born in our fellow human beings. If you take the life of one of God's image bearers, then you have assaulted God and therefore you forfeit your life. Now, in light of the Genesis 9-1 instruction, to be fruitful and multiply. And in light of the Genesis 9, 5, and 6 instruction to enact capital punishment against murderers, just consider how upside down our society is. On the one hand, we have state-sanctioned abortion on a massive scale, which constitutes murder and is the polar opposite of fruitfulness. On the other hand, Significant parts of our society don't want to practice the death penalty. And even when we do practice the death penalty, we leave death row inmates on death row for like an average of 18 years. It's absolutely ridiculous. And what you need to understand, you really need to understand this. The willingness 
to practice abortion and the unwillingness to practice the death penalty have the same root problem and unwillingness to take seriously the image of God in man. Those who refuse to practice the death penalty don't take the dignity of man seriously enough. Now, after telling Noah and his sons that they must uphold the dignity of God's image in man by putting murderers to death, God again tells them to be fruitful. See, God is for life, upholding life, promoting life, encouraging life, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. One necessary way to honor the image of God in man is to hold accountable anyone who assaults that image verses 5 and 6. But another necessary way to honor the image of God in man is to multiply that image throughout the world. In other words, father children and fill the earth with images of God. Practical counsel here? Do not be afraid that human beings will overpopulate the earth. Nonsense from the 1960s and 70s. Do not be afraid that children will overburden Earth's resources. Do not be afraid that children will undermine your prospects for prosperity. Instead, be afraid of living contrary to God's design. Be afraid of looking into the future with a selfish or pessimistic outlook. Children, after all, after all, are always a link to the, to the future and a good link at that. Remember that your children are included within the scope of God's covenant with Noah. As he says in verse 9, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, which now includes us and our children and our children's children. What kind of a world are your children born into? What kind of a world are your grandchildren born into? They are born into a world that God treats far better than it deserves, which brings us to the Noahic covenant in verses 8 through 17. So after the blessing of verses 1 to 7, God establishes his covenant with Noah. Before the flood, God had told Noah back in Genesis 6, I will establish my covenant with you. Now in Genesis chapter 9, God keeps his promise and establishes his covenant with Noah, and not only with Noah, but with Noah's sons and with their offspring, thereby including all human beings everywhere, including us, and with the animals, verse 10, and with the earth, verse 13. And as Noah's wife is one flesh with her husband, and as each wife of Noah's sons is one flesh with her husband, and as their offspring includes both sons and daughters, both men and women are included within the scope of this covenant. Although we as... Uh, little lesson here. Although we as human beings occupy a special place in the world because we are God's image bearers, we ought to take to heart that God has entered into covenant with the entirety of creation, with all of the animals and with the earth itself. This won't turn us into unhinged and idolatrous environmentalists but it will lead us to be humble and judicious stewards of the good world that God made and upholds. We must also take to heart that God's covenant with Noah is for all future generations, thus nudging us to leave a legacy of faithfulness to our children 
and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and beyond. The, the, uh, God specifies the nature of the covenant in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This particular covenant is God's public dis disclosure to Noah of the deliberations in God's very own heart that we encountered at the end of chapter 8 last week. Remember? Chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. That was God's internal deliberation. Now he publicly declares his intentions by making a promise to Noah and to Noah's sons and to all of Noah's descendants, which includes you and me. God's promise is that he will never again bring a flood upon the whole earth that destroys the whole earth and blots out every living creature. There will be thunderstorms and downpours of rain. There will be hurricanes and tsunamis. There will be localized flooding from heavy rains and rivers that swell their banks. But these storms will only go so far. There will never again be a global flood that devastates the whole world. And after God reveals his covenant in verse 11, then he reveals the sign of the covenant in verse 12. When God makes a covenant with human beings, he typically attaches to it a, a sign, a, a visible, tangible, physical sign that represents the reality of the covenant. And here in Genesis 9, verses 12 and se to 17, we learn about this sign. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sign of God's covenant with Noah is the rainbow. Although it, it isn't merely the rainbow, it's God's rainbow. It says at the beginning of verse 13, I, I have sent my bow in the clouds. This bow in the clouds is God's doing. The rainbow belongs to God. It is his. He made it. And it means just what he says it means. He gets to tell us what the sign signifies. All this is another echo of Genesis chapter 1. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 on the fourth day, God puts lights in the heavens above the sun, the moon, and the stars, and God said, let them be for signs. Genesis 1.14. In the beginning, God put signs in the sky. And now, in the renewed world after the flood, God put a sign in the sky. Not a light source, but a light spectrum that stems from the light of the sun. What is the rainbow? It is sunlight shining through water droplets, and those water droplets refract light into a beautiful array of colors in an arc from one end of the, from one end of the sky to the other. After the storm, peace. After the darkness, light. 
Think about the pattern. In Genesis 1, 1 to 3, while the dark world was covered in the water, the Lord created light. In Genesis 8, 1 to 2, while the world had just endured 40 dark days and nights of rain and the world was again covered in water, the rain ceased and the previous daylight reemerged. Now, in the case of localized storms, that will happen all over the world at various times and in various places. A rainstorm will be interrupted by sunlight shining through the potentially threatening clouds and the potentially destructive waters and painting a bow in the clouds that declares the mercy of God to a world that doesn't deserve it. The light shines in the darkness. The revelation of the goodness and mercy of God shines forth out of the storm. And that's what the rainbow declares. The mercy of God to a sinful world. The patience of God to a wicked world. The providential kindness of God to an idolatrous world. The rainbow signifies God's promise to preserve physical life, human life, and animal life upon a habitable earth. God and every living creature that is on the earth is party to this covenant. And God says, I will remember. Not that, he, not that he's going to forget, but his point is that he's not going to forget. He's not going to forget to be faithful to his promise and to uphold life. 10,000 times 10,000 rainbows ever since that first rainbow declares the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful world. The faithfulness of God is a beautiful thing. So look up, brothers and sisters, because here again, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Now, as we get toward the end here, it is a great tragedy that people have hijacked the beauty of the rainbow and turned it into a celebration of sexual perversion. And yet, that's exactly what sinners always do. That's what, that's what sinners do. We, we take what is good and we hijack it for our own wicked purposes. The President of the United States has proclaimed June 2022 as LGBTQI Pride Month. And he has called upon us as Americans, quote, to recognize the achievements of the LGBTQI plus community to celebrate the great diversity of the American people and to wave their flags of pride high. Although we must treat individual people with decency and respect, never fail to do that. Even so, we cannot affirm and celebrate anything that violates God's standards. Therefore, we cannot do what the president has called upon us to do. We cannot participate in a lie. We cannot go along with turning the symbol of God's mercy to a wicked world into a symbol that celebrates a spectrum of sexual expressions that are contrary to God's will. So let's not presume upon the kindness of God, but instead do our very best to be grateful recipients of all that pertains to life and human flourishing and to be faithful stewards of the life that God gives and upholds. Now, one final thing, and actually this is a very important thing. The Noahic covenant is a life-affirming covenant that is still in effect, but it is not a covenant that brings salvation. 
God's covenant with Noah preserves life upon the earth, but it does not bring sinners into eternal salvation. If you have children and exercise wise dominion over the animals and enjoy eating steak <laughs> and honor God's, honor God's image in man and do your, your part to uphold that dignity and to support capital punishment. And if you remember that the rainbow is God's rainbow and it's, it's given to us as a sign of patience, if, if you do all that and no more, you're going to hell. Remember, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, Genesis 8.21. But there is no provision in the Noahic covenant for the forgiveness of sins. None. So I leave you with this. It is good to behold the sign of God's mercy in the clouds, but it is better to behold the sign of God's mercy at the cross. God's mercy in the clouds only promises the preservation of mankind as a whole until the end. God's mercy at the cross brings forgiveness and eternal salvation to everyone who trusts in Jesus. It is good to receive plants and animals as food for the nourishment of your body, but it is better to receive that which is given for your spiritual nourishment. Jesus said to people who were preoccupied with filling their bellies with bread, do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, John 6, 27. And what Jesus, the Son of Man, gives to us is himself. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, John 6, 35. It is good to remember that those who shed the blood of one of God's image bearers should themselves be put to death, but it is better to remember that Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God, shed his own blood for rebellious sinners like you and me so that we could be rescued out of the realm of sin, judgment, and death. It is good to remember that the light shining through water droplets and hanging a message of forbearance in the clouds, but it is better to remember the light of the world who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It is good to remember that there is a pattern of physical light following physical darkness in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapters 8 and 9. It's very interesting. It's very good to remember that. It's helpful to see that. But it is better to remember, and not just to remember, but to experience the reality of spiritual light breaking into the darkness of your own heart. The darkened soul prays, send out your light and your truth, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling, Psalm 43.3. And far more wonderful than the rainbow in the sky is that moment when God causes his glorious light to shine into the darkness of a sinner's heart. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would live in the good of your promise. Not only your promise to Noah, but also your promise to everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, I pray that you would bring correction and training in righteousness. I pray that you would enable us to think the way that you think, to see the way that you see, to love what you love, to hate what you hate. Conform us to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.